Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna, and I'm sorry about my voice. (laughs) (laughs) Brenna's a little bit sick, so we're just going to deal with it. (laughs) And our show is created on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe, on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tecumlupstay Shwetmik territory within the unceded traditional lands of Shwetmik Ulu. And today we're talking about an issue that really is wrapped up with all kinds of political ideas, including mm-hmm. colonialism. And oh that God, yeah. is the notion of banned books. So Joe and I have been talking about this off air for a little while because it just seems like the number of books being banned and challenged, particularly in the U.S. around this hysteria around critical mm-hmm. race theory, not that we're immune to it here in Canada, I really wanted to talk about it because, I don't know, banning books seems like something straight out of like moral panics of the 1980s. And to see it mm-hmm. still such an issue in 2021 really blows my mind, Joe. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, this is one of those things where you know it's always happening, but then when you start to dig into it, particularly in about the last year, so 2021, 2020, the absolute escalation in the number of books that are being challenged, and I'm just going to say it, for all the wrong reasons. Yes, yes. It's staggering. Like, when you start to look into it, almost all of these books that are being challenged, and we should preface this by saying most of them are being challenged, not all of them, and not even most of them are being banned, because thankfully we have librarians to save our butts. Yes. But yeah, most of them have everything to do with anti-police messaging uh, to do with LGBTQIA or to do with people of color. And that is gross in this day and age. Gross, gross, gross. Well, it is. And it's interesting. You know, I was um, I was mindlessly scrolling Instagram last night and Ooh. I came across this post that A.S. King, friend of the show, mm. A.S. King, um, had <laughs> yes, posted friend of the show. <laughs> <laughs> um, And she posted, you know, she really doesn't like the rhetoric of you can decide what your own kids read. You don't have to ban books for everyone else. Because mm-hmm. she was like, actually, it's the kids who are living in households where those kinds of dictates are made that make mm-hmm. it so that schools and libraries have to be open places where parents don't control what students have access to because yeah. they need that space. The kids who are looking for those books and living in homes where they can't access those kinds of titles are mm-hmm. exactly the kids who need to be able to read those books. It's really important. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I came across that messaging a lot when I was starting to look up responses to this. And I feel like this comes back to some of the discussions that we've had around responses to the pandemic as well, right? Where it's the staunch defense of individuality, like me and my needs and what I want, and how that doesn't end up percolating down to the masses, right? So people say, I don't think this should be available to kids in schools. And as a result, no kid should read it. Or I am the person who is most informed and able to make this decision, despite the fact that I, parent X, have not actually read this book. I have just been told by a really crappy conservative senator that this book is inappropriate for young minds. It's wild to me because, you know, if when I think back about my most important learning experiences, as a kid, it was almost always with books that I was finding 
either slightly too young or, mm-hmm. you know, I, I was finding them outside of the confines of anybody else handing them to me, right? Like those books mm-hmm. that I found by myself on the library shelves that really gave me lots of questions or opened my eyes. And I was lucky because I grew up in a family where, you know, I could definitely ask most of those questions if I wasn't too embarrassed or shy to do it with my Mm -hmm. family. I had an older brother who I definitely could ask those kinds of questions of. But I just think about how important that, I don't know, self-discovery and independent learning was to the way I saw myself and also Mm -hmm. to how important I felt books were in my life. And I feel like if the only books kids ever get to access are the sanitized ones that their evangelical church leader and conservative senators say are Mm -hmm. okay, I don't know how much space that leaves for growth and personal development. And and I recognize that the people painting books are not super worried about growth and personal development. Like, I do get that. Yeah. But I just think that's the piece. It's less about the institutional structural kind of concept of banning books, although obviously I think that that is bad. Mm-hmm. It's more about the kind of atmosphere that gets created when books become this like threatening thing that kids have to be protected from instead of this yeah. exciting thing that kids get to find, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know if my experiences are just so different from other people's, but like the library and books were a refuge for me and my sister. Like my parents actively created an environment where my sister and my rooms were safe havens. Like we could go there to collect our thoughts, to build our imaginations. And we didn't have TV and we didn't have our own phones. And yes, I'm talking about a bit of a bygone era now. (laughs) But at the same time, it was my parents' open-mindedness that they wanted us to cultivate that. So we would go on summer vacations and it was first stop, library, get an armload of books for like a month and then while away the days just reading and engaging in all of these different kinds of experiences. And I recognize that there's a weird nostalgia and a privilege to all of that. And I think in some regards, we're talking about different things when we're talking about people who are actively trying to ban books or challenging them because they don't like the ideologies in them. But at its core, like that's what books offer us, right? They're different experiences. They're opportunities to go beyond the boundaries of our own existence. And yeah, when people start to tell you, you can't read that. And it's just because I don't like the idea of them. Like some of the books that are being challenged, it's not even that they're provocative. It's like, there's a trans character who exists in this book. It must be banned. And it's it's, it's baffling to me. Well, so often, you know, we've read books on the show before that have been banned and you and I have looked at each other and said, like, Mm -hmm. why was this banned? Like, what is the problem here? (laughs) It's funny. I was thinking back, uh, I was in a big Judy Bloom space preparing for this because Mm -hmm. um, as, as you probably know, Judy Bloom is like the number one most challenged author ever. Yeah, people really don't like her. (laughs) They really want to keep her books off, especially library, school library shelves. They really want to keep them off. And my own sort of minor interaction with the idea of like censorship happened around a Judy Bloom book. And I think I told Mm. this on this show when we when we read Judy Bloom together. But 
I read all of the Judy Bloom on the kids floor in the library and mm-hmm. I went I had recently learned how to use a card catalog and I found this Judy Bloom book that I'd never heard of in the card catalog so I went to find it it was shelved in the adult fiction section I took it up to the to the librarian and I I handed her my card and she called my dad oh, because it okay. was an adult Judy Bloom book and she didn't think I should have it and you know as I get older I empathize more with her, I'm sure that as a librarian in a small town, back in the days before public librarians were necessarily professionalized, mm-hmm. I can definitely see the like, oh, I don't want this guy calling me up later and yelling at me because I let this girl take out this book. So I'm just going to give him a heads up. Yeah. But I remember, I remember I could hear my dad on the other end of the phone. And she said, uh, your daughter's trying to take out this book. It's an, it's an adult book. And my dad said, what's uh, does she have library fines? <laughs> and my brain was like what no and dad was like oh okay give her the book so what's <laughs> the problem <laughs> what's the problem you let her have the book and you know i i do think that i found that book probably too young it might have oh, made sure. me a bit cynical about marriage judy bloom's mm. adult books have some thoughts about marriage huh. but you know it was really important that uh, I don't know, not to be too lofty, but like my intellectual development was mine alone, right? Like I Mm -hmm. had the opportunity, even in a tiny town of a thousand people with a tiny public library, to find books that allowed me to take intellectual risks. Absolutely. That my parents were okay with it. And I often think back to that moment, if I had been growing up in a different kind of house, that phone call could have ended really badly, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I... I don't know, when I read these stories of these parents in particular and school board members really trying to control the type of narrative kids have access to, my, my favorite thing that gets challenged is the idea of like anti-Americanism, which is like, oh gosh, yeah. or, or books not being patriotic enough. And I just mm-hmm. think like, what does it mean to love a country if not to understand its faults right what does it mean to be a whole human if not to have these kinds of critical experiences and i just think it's frightening to me that we've re-entered a period with so much focus on being afraid (laughs) afraid Mm -hmm. of critical race theory whatever it is we think it means and afraid of books and afraid of our kids having access to more than we had access to and i just think it's damning, right? Oh, yeah. like we shouldn't mm-hmm. be here as a society. It's not a good sign. Well, and the word that really stuck out in what you just said is critical, right? Mm. There's an inability to be critical in a lot of these challenges. Like when I look up the rationale for why a book should be taken off the shelves or removed from a library or taken out of curriculum, it's always these ridiculous statements that seem to lack any kind of critical thought what they're missing is they're they're asking the wrong questions they're not saying what is the value of this book what could students what could young adults what could adults even gain from the experience of reading this book they're not approaching it from that open-minded perspective right what they're doing is they're saying how can i close down discussion how can i remove agency and power to marginalize groups How can we make sure that people are sheep and abide by the same kind of doctrine? Like, whenever I see the the anti-nationalism stuff or even the the pro-police arguments for 
banning and challenging books, I'm always like, oh, okay, you uphold the status quo, you're worried, you feel threatened. This is coming from a place of fear. This is not about criticalness. This is not about protecting children, because it's always under the guise of protecting children. Guess what? The children don't need to be protected. The children are fine. Oh, and the fear has so many layers, like not to just talk about Judy Bloom, but <laughs> <laughs> But you love a Judy Bloom. <laughs> I do, she's the best. You remember when we talked about Tiger Eyes, we talked about how she had to remove a scene mm-hmm. that included masturbation at the yes. at the behest of her publisher. And she's written later about that experience. Uh, she has an autobiography called Places I Never Meant to Be. And she writes in that book, What effect does this climate have on a writer? It's chilling. It's easy to become discouraged. You begin to second guess everything you write. I've never forgiven myself for caving into editorial pressure based on fear, for playing into the hands of the censors. And I think that's exactly it, right? The thing we never find out is what authors never even commit to the page Mm -hmm. because they look at the climate that they're publishing in and wonder if they're going to have support if they write what they really want to write. And that's... Mm -hmm. That's really sad to think about, like the stories that we never read. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that's the thing, right? We're we're focusing on the stories that did get told and they yeah. managed to make their way out into the world. But what do we lose when people look at what's happening and they say, well, I guess I won't even write that or I guess it's not worth the bother. It's so disheartening, right? When you start to go down this rabbit hole and you read the responses from authors who have been challenged or whose books have been banned or they've been targeted for online harassment, Mm -hmm. you can just feel the pain. Like, Mm -hmm. I read this one uh, extra article. They were focusing on George M. Johnson's book, All Boys Aren't Blue, which was one of the Mm. big challenged books from last year. And this is about a young black queer person through a series of personal essays. And it was charged with obscenity laws in a bunch of different states. So Extra reaches out to Johnson to say like, hey, can we get a a soundbite about your response to this? And Johnson says, I don't necessarily feel there's an attack on my work. For it to be an attack on my work, I would have to believe that these people actually read the book. I feel like it's an attack against my livelihood in terms of who I am. It's an attack against my existence. Yeah. Can you imagine putting everything you have into a work, finally getting it published? Like, it's so hard to get published. And this book is acclaimed. Like, it's supposed to be absolutely wonderful. And then to have this kind of attack. And I think that's the thing. That's one of the things that people are missing is that these authors are coming from a place of reflection and self-evaluation. Like, they are telling stories that need to be told to protect other people who are vulnerable or at risk like them. And then people just swoop in with these nonsense agendas and destroy everything about their hard work. And I don't think it needs to be personal to be taken seriously. Like, it shouldn't have to be, oh, this poor author, we shouldn't do this anymore. Like, I think what you said about providing opportunities to young people to experience growth and like read beyond their boundaries is actually the most important thing. But yeah, you're right. We're doing irreparable harm to not just the state of publishing, but the way that we as a society talk about our own existence. But sure, let's protect the children. Well, I think what you're saying is really important. It got me thinking, and I've been thinking a lot this week about this issue of representation. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes 
those of us who make an effort to read really progressively forget how important that piece of representation is, right? I just mean, we've done it on the show here, right? Like we've pushed to want more than just mm-hmm. representation, right? Yes, like representation always. as the entry level isn't enough for us anymore. Mm-hmm. Yes. But you realize just how controversial basic representation remains when you start to look at some of these banned book lists. Like one of the books that is most frequently banned from classrooms and school libraries is Tango Makes Three, which mm-hmm. is a picture book about two boy penguins who adopt a penguin that doesn't have a mommy. Like, that's what mm-hmm. it's about. And It's gay, Bernard, gay! <laughs> the first time I read it to Groot, I was like, okay, I really thought this would be, like, a much more intense story, given all mm-hmm. the, like, political baggage around it. Like, I was like, surely it's not just that the penguins are gay, right? Like, there's got to be more to it. That no, no, there's not no. more to it than that. No. They're Mm-mm. just boy penguins who hold their little flippers together. And it's like, that is such a low bar for what kids need access to, to mm-hmm. just be like, oh, P.S., gay dads exist, Right? Like, if nothing else, you think about the kid who is being raised by gay dads and, like, the very existence of a book with gay dads in it that is in no way vulgar, obscene, political, Mm -hmm. charged, nothing. But that book, just by existing with that representation of those dads, that gets on almost every banned book list for, like, seriously five years solid. Mm -hmm. And I just think, like wow, representation really is a baseline that we're still fighting for. It's easy to forget that when you read widely and you don't engage with those kinds of conversations on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Well, because it's not a conversation, right? No, it's true. I do feel like that's one of the biggest issues. You know, I was doing a lot of work looking at the American system because part of me was, why am I seeing state governors getting involved in what's happening in municipal libraries like the this seems very top down and not the right way to go about things not just because of the books that were being actively targeted but i read this one interesting piece it's from the website the 19th and it's it's really about like how librarians have had to come to the front lines and they're either being targeted they're either having to quit or they're being censored but one of the things that really stuck out to me was this idea that there is a formal system where if somebody says i don't like this book i think it's inappropriate there's like a very clear way to go about it it's policy driven it's like okay here's the form that we fill out and the first question is have you read the whole book and if the answer (laughs) is no it doesn't go any further than that And then it's like, if you have, then they ask you to make the argument like, well, what is it about this book that doesn't agree with you? And then they will take it to a committee, which is comprised of librarians, some other school board officials, even students themselves, which I think is so important because you never hear the students get mentioned in any of this. Like, we're so afraid for our kids, but the students are not being consulted at all. It's always parents. And it's like, at that point, they will make a decision. And then if the school board disagrees with them, then they will reevaluate. So all of these politicians, like senators, they're going against and circumventing the formally outlined process. 
And it's because they are so hyperbolic in their outrage and their discontent. Like, it's a political issue, and it actually has nothing to do with the books themselves. God, yeah. I mean, the process that you outlined seems really reasonable, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. I wish that people didn't feel the need, but I get it. I get it. You, Your kid comes home with a book, you read it, it upsets you, you want to put that somewhere. Okay. Mm-hmm. The fact that there's a process that involves, yeah, actually reading the book, because, oh my gosh, Joe, did you, did you go down the rabbit hole of reading local news stories about this? Because the number of them that start with, I've never read this trash, but yep. it's like, okay, then. I was told by Susan and Judy about this one sentence, which has now been taken out of context, but I think this book should be burned. Yes. Yep. Or like, uh, my son had this book lying open on his desk, and I saw this one paragraph. I read no mm-hmm. further. I immediately complained to the school board, right? So the idea that there is like a thoughtful process that people are asked to go through, I think has value. And the fact that you bring it to the community, right? Like, we do have obscenity laws in Canada. Mm-hmm. The way obscenity law is framed, although it is often used as a cudgel against marginalized groups, but yep. the way obscenity laws are framed is obscenity is not determined by a single judge or a single government official. Obscenity is determined by what is considered to be the reasonable standard in society. And so it becomes a community conversation. So, you know, if that's the way society wants to roll, that's fine. But yeah, what we're seeing instead are these wild top-down approaches. Like, Mm -hmm. it goes so much farther than book banning, too. If you look at some of these anti-critical race theory laws that are coming into effect in states. I cannot. The list of words, not just concepts you aren't allowed to teach, but words you aren't allowed to say mm-hmm. in the classroom. Like, you can't say the word racism. Okay. Just what? <laughs> <laughs> like, I have to laugh because I I honestly got so angry. I just started reading things, like, basically scream yelling them to my husband, being like, <laughs> can you believe this? And he was like, no, I cannot. You also, like, it's too much. You're getting so upset right now. And I was just like, I can't believe we're here. How yeah. do we get so stupid in 2022? It doesn't make any sense to me. It's really frustrating. It's frustrating that this is the conversation. This is the caliber and quality of conversation that we're capable of having about education. Yeah, it's basically a world of comic book shop, guys. Like, (laughs) I read one thing, got angry, posted on internet. Just stop. It's interesting, too, because the books that get banned, the books that get challenged, are often already bestsellers by the time they get banned or challenged. Mm -hmm. And something that, I swear this is the last time I'm going to quote her, but something that Judy Bloom says. (laughs) This episode brought to you by Judy Bloom. (laughs) But something that she says is that when you look at how censorship happens, when you look at how book bannings and challenges happen, she specifically says, this is a quote, if children are excited about a book, it must be suspect. Like there are a group of adults who seem to go around thinking like, hmm, kids are really liking that book, huh? They're, a lot of them are finding it. They're finding <laughs> Something it super must be meaningful. wrong. Something must be weird about it. We got to look. <laughs> we got to find out. Wow. We just don't trust children, I guess. We don't trust our kids. We absolutely don't. Like as a society, we absolutely don't. And I think that that, that says a lot that if a book is meaningful and connecting with youth, there is a certain percentage of the population that will find that threatening. Mm-hmm. That's that's alarming. Yeah. Especially when we then talk about how successive generations or the kids will rescue us. Like, 
Mm-hmm. We put all of the pressure to rescue the planet, to fix things politically, to do better economically. It always ends up having to fall on the next generation. But also, we clearly don't trust them to be smart about their own decisions or to say, hey, I need to do things differently than you because it is a new world. I have these discussions with Trace on Horror Queers about this idea that not everything is for you. So if you don't like something, that doesn't make it bad. It just means you're not the target audience. And the number of adults who just engage in these kinds of behaviors as though everything must appeal to them and only them, and if it falls outside of a very narrow margin... They get so scared and threatened, and we need to burn this whole enterprise to the ground. It's just like, or it's not for you. But also, maybe you need to recognize it's for a lot of other people. Well, that's the thing, right? Like, it was interesting off the top. You compared the conversation around challenge books to the conversation around COVID. And it's it's mm-hmm. really not dissimilar. It's like, no. well, I don't want to wear a mask, so I'm not going to. Yeah, okay, but that action has consequences that spread far beyond you Mm -hmm. not wearing a mask. And likewise, you don't want this book to exist. You don't want to read it. More importantly, you don't want your kid to read it. But the only way that you can sort of enforce that is to make sure no kid reads it. And Mm -hmm. it is, it's this sort of like, I don't know, almost like a corrupting of the community, right? Because it's like taking what is ultimately an individual desire and foisting it upon everybody else, which I guess Mm -hmm. those same folks might argue that's what we're doing with masks. I don't know, but I'm just (sighs) saying, I think that in general, we need to recognize that we don't raise our kids in a vacuum. Actually, not Mm -hmm. everything about how we raise our kids is our individual choice. A lot of it has to do with the values of the society in which we are raising our kids. And I actually think that's a really good thing because it means that, you know, you don't want to have an individualized education. You need a certain base of general knowledge and common experience. We see what happens when society gets so stratified that we don't have that anymore, right? Like, mm-hmm. Well, this and the idea that things can't remain the way that they always are. Because yeah. It sometimes feels like when you're reading the rationale for why people think that certain books should not be available to anyone, to kids in the public sector, whatever, it feels like I'm afraid of what the world looks like now, where everything is so woke now, everything (laughs) has to involve preferred pronouns, you know, like just this fear that the world is leaving people behind and they don't recognize it anymore. So like, let's take out anything to do with race. Let's take out anything to do with sexuality. Like, let's try to sterilize and yeah, keep it in the vacuum. Keep it the way that it once was. Like, that's when you start to see these, oh, traditional family values. Like, I came across um, the American Library Association. They put out an annual report and they include word clouds of reasons for challenges. And when you look at it, it's LGBTQIA, anti-police, Black Lives Matter, extremely liberal, glorifying gay marriage, political viewpoint, like all of the things that we're just oh so concerned about. But then when you look at the number one book that has been challenged according to them for I think it's the last two or three years. It's a book called George by Alex Gino. It's been challenged, banned, and restricted for LGBTQIA content, conflicting with a religious viewpoint, and not reflecting the values of our community. 
This book is about a trans person. Mm. It's literally just that, a trans person going about their life. Yep. Yeah, it's a really sweet, very simple, straightforward, it's a middle grade novel. Mm -hmm. The only sort of controversy that I felt when I read it is that Alex Gino calls the story George, which is sort of the identity and the name that the character is moving away from. And in fact, Gino has decided in 2021 to republish the book uh, and call it Melissa's story instead. But Mm. like, it's not violent. It's not offensive. It's not obscene. It's very middle grade level problems. Just the body going through them as a trans body. Mm hmm. And apparently does not reflect the morals of our community. I'm sorry, I take issue with so many of the words in that statement. To whom does the word are? What exactly constitutes community? Whose morals are we talking about? Like, it is so loaded, Brenna. And the fact that we can't be critical of that is appalling to me. Because, like, what message does—sorry, we're circling back now to the baseline of representation, but I'm just thinking, as a member of the queer community, as someone who values the diversity of opinions and experiences of other marginalized groups, people of color, and so on, like, I just can't imagine how horrifying and how disappointing it would be to look at a book like George slash Melissa's story and say, oh— this book cannot exist because it reflects my experience. How damaging. So damaging. And as you can all tell, listeners, Joe and I feel really passionately about this issue. Um, And something we've been talking about a lot is how do we reinforce the conversation about the danger of banning and challenging books beyond the contexts of, say, banned book week in the fall? And so a change that we're making to the to the show uh, a little bit is that we're going to focus the book club for 2022 on banned books. Mm-hmm. We're only going to read books that have been banned or significantly challenged and we're kind of kind of alternate month to month between sort of classic banned books and more recent titles that have been added to this this tragic pantheon of titles. The ever-growing list, yes. Yeah, so maybe, Joe, I'll start by sort of foregrounding the first couple of books we're going to look at, and then we can talk about what we hope to get out of it. Absolutely. Yeah, one of the requests that we've heard from listeners is that they would like just a bit more of a heads up slash advance notice about the books we're going to read. So we're going to start telling you two books in advance. Yes, so then you have a good buffer to get your hands on copies of these books. And the first book will not be hard to find. Um, This is a book that has been banned and challenged the world over for Mm -hmm. about 50 plus, gosh, I always think it's 2000, Joe, for about 70 plus years. (laughs) Um, And that book is The Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger. Now, in many ways, this book is a personal challenge to put on the book club because- You love it. Oh my gosh, when I read this book in grade 10, I loathed Holden Caulfield so Mm -hmm. much. And then I encountered this book again on my American comprehensives when I was doing my PhD, and I hated Holden Caulfield so much. (laughs) And then I came across some Twitter discourse, God love Twitter discourse, and Mm. it was all about how like everyone is forced to read The Catcher in the Rye and hates this boy. But it's because we're never taught this book with a trauma-informed lens. 
And mm. this is a boy who has been through significant trauma. And maybe if you read it with that in your headspace, you'll change the way you feel about Holden Caulfield. So that's my personal challenge to myself. Okay. <laughs> is to try to open up a bit. Okay. I'm I'm excited for this because I've never read it. Mm. So I'm coming to this brand new and fresh. I've heard plenty of that aforementioned discourse. Not so much the trauma piece. That's new and interesting. Um but yeah, all I've heard is just how awful this character is and how if you relate to him as an adult, then you are deeply disturbed. So I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna try to read it through both lenses. So that is our first book club. So in about a month's time, we'll come back and we'll talk Catcher in the Rye. And mm -hmm. then our next book club um, is going to be This One Summer by Mariko Tamaki and Jillian Tamaki. So this is a comic book for those who enjoy it when we get to do some graphic novels. That's what we're looking at here. And uh, I was shocked when I found out that this is one of the most frequently challenged books in Canada in the last 10 years. Because I think it's an awfully sweet story of what summer is like when you're just on the cusp of adulthood. Hmm. So yeah, we'll take a look at that as well. And that handily kind of is going to come just after Freedom to Read Week here in Canada. So it's a nice, nice little fit with the conversations that will hopefully be going on here around that time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm honestly very excited for this. I'm hopeful. I think as we mentioned at the end of last year, this is an opportunity for us to engage in a critical dialogue about what is happening around these books, but also within these books. But also yeah. we are looking to try to have different kinds of conversations with you folks as listeners. So uh, we recognize that some of the books we picked, people didn't always connect with them as well. So we're hopeful that people will feel a little energized by this project and will want to come along for the ride. I think it's nice when you're reading a book and trying to form a response to send into a show like this to kind of be able to approach it with a question or a lens. And so mm -hmm. I encourage people to approach these books and think about like, why was this why? a bander <laughs> challenge? And yeah. what what does that kind of say? Like, what's important about that? Um, and I think that that'll give us a way into all of these books because we are going to be moving around kind of temporally. Joe and I have sort of sketched out like a year's worth of banned books, but nothing's set in stone. And one thing we wanted to invite listeners in with is to say if there's a book, particularly if you're listening from outside North America, and there's a book that's been banned in your country that you think we should read, mm -hmm. we might not be able to get access to it, but we will try. So get in touch with us, let us know. And that's definitely something that we can look to program, particularly towards maybe the back half of the year. Yeah, yeah, because our experience is very much informed from the North American context. There's very much certain things happening in our side of the world, but we'd be very curious, especially if there is something else happening that we should be paying attention to in the world of literature and young adult literature more specifically. As always, we're, we're very interested in the international realm that we might be missing. Definitely. One thing I'm curious about is, you know, in a North American context, the books that do typically get challenged and banned are usually challenged and banned from a, a very right-wing perspective, mm -hmm. a very conservative perspective. You know, the woke folks, we get accused of cancel culture all the time, but mm. when books literally get banned, they're typically getting banned from a conservative viewpoint, from a conservative perspective. They're typically too liberal for our public spaces. And yeah. so I'd be really curious if you live in a place where the inverse is true. 
That's just Hmm. something that I have curiosity about because, you know, that Overton window, that political window is different in every culture. So I'd be really curious to see what that looks like elsewhere. Yeah, it's curious. I was looking at this ALA list and of the top 10 books that were banned and challenged, like the most frequent ones for 2020, there are two that were challenged or banned because of what you're saying, the kind of wokeness of it. So that was To Kill a Mockingbird because it features a white savior character and its perception of the Black experience. So Harper Lee, you know, writing from a experience outside of her own. And then the other one was Of Mice and Men by John Steinbeck. And uh, that's racist stereotypes and slurs. So those are the the two of the top 10. And then literally the other eight. And I think they even have like a back half. It's like, the vast majority of them are, you know, like, oh, we're scared of queer people and people of color and anti-police stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, because, like, you know, when Harry Potter makes it onto the, one of those lists, Harry Potter isn't being challenged for the reasons that we've talked about on the show. It's magic and witchcraft. Yeah. Not transphobic content, but magic yeah. and witchcraft. And so yeah. I, I'd love to hear if those cultural issues play out differently where you're listening from. Yes, yes. Yeah, so folks, get to reading. Catcher in the Rye, that's your first big pick. And then uh, if you want to jump onto the late February, early March pick, that is This One Summer. And if you want to get in touch with us at any point, either you've got ideas for us to program for this series of book club, or you just want to talk about banned books or mm-hmm. you're digging into catcher in the rye and you've got stuff to share you can find us at hkhs pod on the twitters or on the hashtag hkhs pod joe where do they find you if they want to talk to you individually i can be reached at b still my remote and that's the letter b and i'm at brenna c gray that's gray with an a and obviously long form stuff book club invites long form feedback So you can find our email, hkhspod at gmail.com for anything you want to send us that's a little bit longer. Yeah, so that is the kickoff to 2022. Very excited. But next week, Brenna, we're doing a regular sode. We are going to be (laughs) checking out. I'm so excited by this. We are reading When Dimple Met Rishi, and this is a book that was written in North America, but we're watching the Netflix TV show Mismatched, which is from India. I am really excited for this. I love these books. There's a whole series of books that take place in this universe by Sentai Manon. They're fantastic. I love the characters. There's just the right amount of kissing. They're really light. Um, they deal with cultural issues, but in a deeply loving way. Yeah. I really enjoy these books. And I'm excited. I'm excited to see where the TV show goes with it, because a lot of the contextual references are about being Indian American. So I'm interested mm-hmm. to see what happens in the TV series. Agreed. Yeah. So that's where we're headed next. All right, folks. So you're reading Catcher in the Rye. You're catching up with Mismatched on Netflix and reading When Diplomat Rishi. And uh, until next time, I'll see you on the page. I will see you on the screen.